Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We'll look at Genesis chapter 2 here and the theme of the Garden of God. As it's laid out, it's described what the garden was like, and then Adam's own place in it, his work, and finally the temptation and trial that he was presented with, that we all are presented with. The Lord God planted a garden in the land of delight. The word Eden in our text describes uh, a picture of something delightful. Eden could be translated paradise, as we find later in the Bible. When the thief on the cross says, uh, Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. And then finally in the book of Revelation, where it says there's a tree of life in paradise. It's describing Eden. Eden is the land of delight and paradise. Eden is the land and the garden is placed within it. I didn't really realize this till looking closer at the text that the garden itself is not described as all of Eden. That Eden is the land into which the garden is placed. It's a garden that God plants. It says in verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. It describes this garden that we could picture on a raised elevation, a hill, or even including a mountain peak at its center. We know it's got to be on a raised elevation because of the rivers. It says that there was a mist going up from the ground and watering the whole face of the land. Now, in some translations, it describes not just a mist, but a spring, a source of water from which this river is flowing out into all of the land. There is a great river that comes out of Eden. Verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. So from the garden comes a river off of the mountain, and it parts into four rivers. And those four rivers go out to feed the water into all these other places. Some of the names we might even recognize, the river Tigris, the river Euphrates, ancient rivers before the flood. So from this source of life, this source of water, this source of nourishment, God plants a garden. And he causes to grow up every type of tree, trees that will provide food, trees that will provide fruit, trees that on the one hand it says are delightful to look at, and the other hand are good for nourishment. God plants a garden. And in the middle of the garden, he has two special trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In fact, Ezekiel describes this garden in Ezekiel chapter 28 as the holy mountain of God. Meaning that the garden wasn't just a nice place to live, but it was meant by God to be his dwelling place, his holy mountain. What later would be pictured in the tabernacle. And when they built the tabernacle as God's 
place of worship, his home, his residence. They put all this imagery from Eden into the tabernacle. They, they wove it into the curtains, pictures of fruit trees, the picture of the cherubim guarding the entrance to the temple. This was God's first home with man. These gardens don't just happen. In fact, every beautiful work that we experience in this world starts with God, with God planting a seed. It's in all the goodness of the world around us, the meals that we eat, the birds that sing sweetly in the trees. Every reason why we sing how great thou art is is all around us in anything good and anything beautiful. It begins with God planting it. It continues even in our own faith. God plants the seed. He plants the seed of his word in our hearts. And that's a work of him as well. A work of him beginning something beautiful, something good within us through the gospel. Then God forms man. He forms him from the dirt and he breathes into him the breath of life. It says that he takes Adam and he settles him in the garden. Verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So after forming Adam, God takes him and he tells him to settle down and make a home in Eden. But it's not just a picture of eternal rest and delight where Adam is going to sit back on his beach chair. When the, the Bible says that God rested from all of his work, that rest was not meant to be that now you can just sit back and do nothing, but a rest in which we could enjoy what God had started. Adam was meant to enjoy and continue enjoying what God had started. And his work in the garden was not to be a burden. There were no thorns, no thistles, but rather he was to tend and to guard it as his delight. The two words in verse 15 describe Adam's work. He was to tend it. The Hebrew word is avad. And to guard it. The Hebrew word is shamar. He was to avad and shamar. Two words that form the basic fundamental uh, acts of worship throughout scriptures as you go forward. It begins in this garden that Adam's supposed to take care of. And we see here in the second point that gardens don't just happen. Not only does God have to plant the seed and begin this creation that he's made, but then he wants us to continue taking care of it. I mentioned earlier in the service about my backyard and how there's these green briars that grow up. I heard somebody call them once the devil's weed. I noticed in my backyard by these devil's weed, these thorns that are growing up, that if I don't have my thickest gloves on, they'll poke me and make me bleed. There's another more beautiful plant. It's like an English ivy that's growing back there. And I learned in researching those aren't native to South Carolina either. The English ivy is an invasive plant. And then I've got a holly bush. 
And I don't know if you've ever had a holly bush. So first of all, they're very dangerous if you're not paying attention to what you're doing. But they will grow and grow. And this thing has grown, it's probably 12 feet tall now. And I don't know what to do with it. There's something about the wildness of nature that's beyond us when you think about it. I mean, what are, what are we capable of actually taming and controlling to the point where we'd be totally satisfied that, that now we've got it figured out? Any of you working in a garden or working with plants know it, that work never ends. It's season after season. It's nurturing, paying attention to, pulling weeds. And sometimes it's dangerous. The words avad and shamar appear again in the Bible in Exodus chapter 4. When Moses goes to Pharaoh, he says, the Lord tells him, say to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may come into the wilderness to avad me, to serve me. Just as Adam was serving in the garden, in the presence of the Lord, that was to continue with the children of Israel in the wilderness. Again, in Numbers chapter 3, it speaks of the work of the priesthood and says that the priest shall shamar the high priest. Watch over and guard the high priest. And that they're also supposed to shamar the whole congregation of Israel. Watch over and guard the church. They are to avad at the tent where they worship with the Lord, and they're to shamar the worship and the people and the priesthood. So these words that are brought up already in Genesis 2, describing Adam's place in the garden, continue to be acts of worship throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. In other words, gardens don't just happen. It takes work to protect and preserve and cultivate a garden that's not just wild. There's a difference between the wild and the wilderness in this world and the gardens and the order that God wants us to cultivate. This is true in nature, but it's also true in the church. It's true in the church that we too, as a priesthood, are in charge of cultivating what God's doing here. Not just sitting back and receiving, but also actively working. It takes work to nourish a church, to care about each other, to love each other, to serve each other. It takes work to protect and guard what God's doing here because we all know the devil's thorny vines will always come back. You can chop them off. You can try to poison them. You can try to get sin out of your life completely. But if you think that's the end of the battle, that now you've got it figured out and you're not going to be tempted ever again, you're not going to experience the devil's work, you've, you've completely destroyed him, is when he'll sneak in the back door. And if you don't tend to that garden over time, you won't notice it at first. 
but slowly a church will have his vines creeping into it. So gardens don't just happen. Adam was the first priest, the first priest in the priestly work of guarding God's temple and taking care of it. And what was going to be the primary source of his trial and test was the tree. So God commanded Adam. This is in verse 16. After telling him to work and keep it, he said, he commanded him, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. On the one hand, God gives his blessing and his goodness first. We probably pass over this phrase because we're so familiar with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but we miss that God said first, you can eat of every tree. God wasn't restricting Adam from his goodness. He wasn't trying to take away his blessings by saying, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Instead, he gives him all his goodness. Of all this world could offer that God has made, every tree that's good for food, only this one tree he uses as a test. And he says that if you eat of it, you will die. And more specifically, the Hebrew doubles up the wording. It says, dying you shall die, meaning you're doomed to die, meaning your death will begin and it will continue and it will unravel, not just in Adam, but in a death that's going to continue dying all around him. When sin enters the world, it begins with Adam, but death spreads to all men. Dying, all the world begins to die. In a couple weeks from today, we'll be exploring more in depth the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, looking at the term wisdom in chapter 3. But let's remember here what happens to that garden when it's not tended to. I've been told that when this church was first built, you could walk up and down Pinecrest here, and it was probably a little bit safer, but it also was a lot more well-kept that the houses along Pinecrest Avenue were, you know, pretty stable families. Uh, and they, they kept a nice yard. They kept nice flowers. Well, you travel up and down Pinecrest now and you see something different. There's a number of rental houses. And some of those places seem to be growing out. There's shopping carts that seem to be growing out into the road with trees and, and weeds. And there is a bit of a symbolism in all of that. Uh, There's a symbolism to our job that this world left to itself tends toward chaos. It grows wild. And it is the job of the church through the gospel to bring order, to bring sense, to bring beauty, to cut back the sinful behavior that is growing loose in this world and redeem it. And the reason it grows wild is because there's this serpent that God allows to enter the garden. 
God allows it to happen. He, he knows what's happening. He allows the serpent to come to Eve in a place where Eve is not being tended to. And he begins to sow seeds of doubt. He begins to question whether God is really good and what this tree of the knowledge of good and evil is really all about and what God's not telling you. It's the true trial we all have to face. And it's a trial that the narrative in Genesis says we shouldn't do alone. Immediately after the command not to eat of the tree of good and evil, immediately after the Lord says it is not good for the man to be alone, can you see the connection between the tree and the temptation and that God would say now, by the way, it's not good that you should be alone. It's the first time the Bible says anything is not good. Right there in the Garden of Eden, something's not good. Something's incomplete. And it's that Adam shouldn't be alone. That the temptation, the trial that we all are going to face where the devil is going to work his way, slither into our lives, is something we can't handle ourselves. Whatever that struggle is for you, whatever that guilt is, whatever that doubt is, whatever that lie is that's growing in your life, the Bible says you can't handle it alone. And so he creates the woman. And she's described not as being like the man in every way. In fact, she's described as being his complement, which is to say that all the places where Adam is going to be weakest, Eve is going to supplement with her strength. In all the places where Eve is going to be weakest, Adam is going to supplement with his strength. And he pairs them together so that the two should become one flesh and family should be the core of society to preserve and protect what God is trying to do from one generation to the next generation to the next. Now we know that the serpent does slither into our lives and not all families work out. Not all marriages work out. But the point of this text is not to just single it out in terms of marriage, but to bring us together in terms of fellowship, friendship, family, and church. That every one of us has a family. And every one of us has a fellowship in our church. And this church is to be the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, married together with him. So that like Eve and Adam become one, we become one with Christ. And that none of us are ever to be alone when we're facing that temptation. Left to ourselves, we tend only toward chaos, trouble, despair, and even death. We tend to think only of ourselves. And so in so many ways, Adam and Eve did not do what God had asked them to do. And so the Lord God had to make a new plan. He had to recreate Adam, sending his son in his own likeness. If Eden was the holy mountain 
on which Christ, in which God was dwelling, then Christ is the holy mountain in which God dwells in his heart. God went into the heart of Jesus so that through Jesus, the garden could be saved. In Jesus, God walked among us once again. God faced the weeds and the wilderness. It says that after Adam and Eve fell into sin, God drove them out of the garden. And the very same verb is used after Jesus was baptized, God drove him into the wilderness to be tempted. Everywhere where we have gone, Jesus has gone as well. Every temptation, every sin, every challenge, every work of the devil, Jesus has faced it as well. He's worked, he's kept the garden. He describes it as his vineyard. And even after doing all this, even after doing it all perfectly, they killed him. They killed him. They saw all the goodness that Jesus was doing, all the goodness that God sent in his own son, and they killed him. And God let it happen. Just as God let temptation into the wilderness to be faced by Adam and Eve, God allowed his own son to be cursed for us. Because Jesus faced this willingly, without having to take of the fruit that he wasn't supposed to take, trusting in God all the way to death, his death was perfect. And he was raised up from the dead to be the new Adam. When the first woman comes to the tomb and sees the first risen picture of Jesus, Mary looks at him, sees the risen Lord, and says, Are you the gardener? Because, of course, he is the first gardener. He is the first to bring us back to the garden. What Jesus' resurrection is in the Bible is picturing the beginning of a new Eden. Getting us back to dwelling in the presence of God and picturing for us the ultimate culmination. Not that we're just going to leave these bodies behind to float around on clouds, but that there's going to be a new garden with a river flowing out, with a tree that heals us of all of our suffering in this world, a place for us to live again in harmony with God without the devil who's been cast into outer darkness with nothing but God's beauty and goodness rid of our sinful nature at last. I'll close with this passage from Isaiah. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up among the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the word, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and he shall decide disputes for many peoples. 
and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Amen.